everyone and welcome back to the Lisa Burke Show where each week my guests from Luxembourg or more internationally bring us their wisdom on a whole range of topics. And it really is great to be back. I've had two weeks off, one due to COVID and the second due to a house move. And if any of you are moving house out there, I know your pain. It is not an easy undertaking, especially as we get older and seem to accumulate quite a lot more than we think we have. <laughs> This week, as always, I'm joined by the wonderful Sasha Kyo, who's going to give us a reflection of the week's news. And as always, it's jam-packed with news. We've got Dr. Elizabeth Letelier, Professor Raiko Kruger and Dr. Ibrahim Boussad. So it's going to be a, a very medical-heavy uh, well, discussion, but with wonderful, wonderful insight as well, I hope. But as always, we're going to start with you, Sasha, and we're going to have a look back at the week's news. And as always, well, not a lot going on. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> That is nice to be back. Yes, I sometimes when I'm putting together the, the week's news, I, I kind of think, oh, okay, this was important or this might appeal to people. And then you, you read over it in the morning on a Friday when we record it and think, Oh, gosh, I missed half the big things I hadn't thought about. For example, I didn't put Twitter on our list. Oh, well, that's an ongoing story. Twitter anyway, but um, I think that will sit with us. Yeah, that will sit with us for a few weeks to come. But of course, I suppose we need to mention COP27. Yes. So that started on Monday in Sharm el-Sheikh. And um, it's a controversial climate summit. Um, I listened to a, a podcast, actually, with Greta Thunberg, which made me laugh. It's the first time she's really made me laugh. She seems to have developed uh, a massive sense of humour as well, <laughs> uh, as all her other talents. And she said she was not going because it's a, it's just a, a greenwashing and um, you know, politicians talking ad nauseum. Um, but Of course, we've had so many terrible reports coming out to coincide with COP27. Uh, you know, on the 15th of November, the world's population will have 8 billion. Um, and uh, reports, obviously, that this is unsustainable. Um, and our own Prime Minister, Bettel, was there, um, also made, made a speech. But, um, of course, what's got into the headlines is not his speech but his home screen. I know, I saw that. I saw what was on his home screen. It's it's really quite funny. If you haven't seen it, I do suggest you go and take a look at what was on the home screen on that particular day. Can you yeah, remember? So it's it's yeah. it's it's fun and uh, rather an impressive home screen, much better than mine, I think. <laughs> which would not be hard. But uh, so there's a the, the journalist, Philip Crowther, who's quite well known yes. here for speaking so many languages. And he was at COP27 and was allowed a little peek at uh, Bettel's home screen. And, um, and took a photo of and it. And took a photo of it and <laughs> annotated it. And so he has his husband uh, as, as, um, with Michelle Obama as a, as, a, as a photo. And then, but it's the text messages or the starts of the text messages, which is quite important because there's one from his sister, very informal, but we'd learned that Bettel speaks French uh, at home with his sister, which I suppose we, we could have known seeing as he's, he's half French. Um One from the Dutch Prime Minister, just saying super. So you're like, okay. One from, the, I think, the president of Guinea-Bissau. Guinea yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's a fantastic mixture. And it's wonderful. Like, my, I wish my lock screen looked like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine does not. It's me and my dog. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I know. But actually, the other side of uh, the COP27 story, which is not a great thing, perhaps, but the ongoing war, Uh, Ukraine-Russia has really pushed forward, perhaps, research and innovation in renewable energy. 
Yes, which is a potential positive, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is a potential positive. And yet, uh, at the same time, of course, uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, made a, a video address at the summit um, saying, of course, that the ecological and environmental consequences of the war on Ukraine have been absolutely disastrous yeah. and have a massive effect. So you've always got these two sides of the coin, haven't you? Yeah. That um, yeah. on the one hand, Western nations are, are putting much more research into renewables, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, we're going back to coal as well as yeah. uh, renewables. So there are so many issues to yeah. discuss. No wonder they need three weeks, is it? Or two and a half weeks? To dis- yes. To and talk about To come it. through and what will come out of COP27, only one knows. And then what we do about it is a completely other thing. Yes. Uh, now, let's move continent. Uh, well, I mean, COP27 is, is a global thing, but I mean, from Charbel and Sheikh to the US midterms. They were really interesting this week, weren't they, and got a lot of um, attention. Um, Obviously, the government in power always uh, loses a lot of seats in the midterms. And there was a prediction, uh, maybe also fueled by the former President Trump, that there was going to be this red wall, uh, red being uh, Republican in the States, which hasn't happened. Um, but they do, They, you know, a lot of Republicans have won more seats in the House of Representatives, so it will be harder for uh, the Democrats to push through, or for Joe Biden, to push through uh, legislation. Yes. Um, but... I, you know, it's it's all taken over by social media now, a lot of it, because you had President Trump sort of on the sidelines always saying, I'm going to be making a big announcement. It hasn't come yet. <laughs> um, that he's going to rerun. Now, of course, he's, uh, you know, talking down the Florida governor who had an overwhelming majority, this Ron DeSantis, uh, because he obviously doesn't want another popular Republican to run. Watch this space. American politics is is very interesting. Well, it's interesting because um, there's quite a lot of politicians out there and over that side of the ocean who um, are of a certain age and seem to have a huge amount of energy to to push into political know how. You know, in their 70s, at least their 70s, which uh, gives us all hope, I think. Well, I think President Biden is hinting he will rerun, which, I mean, that, talk about age. That, that's that's quite impressive, isn't it? We all assumed he would do one term and then hand it, hand it over. Well, that kind of uh, is making me think of uh, a different story entirely, which is the ex-king of Spain talking about age. <laughs> My goodness, I was there last night thinking about this story and everything going on. And, and then you read more articles about him and how they get and get away with what they've done is extraordinary. Yes, and we love a, we love a royal scandal, don't we? <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was a, a king who was super popular, obviously, after the uh, uh, in 1975 when he yes. came to power. And uh, I think his private life obviously was not reported on for decades. We didn't have social media back then. We didn't have instant phones and people could get away with different things back then. Uh, Yes, exactly. And uh, we have now found, well, for quite a while, found out that obviously he has abdicated. He spends his time not in Spain. And I think the current king has has kind of is keeping him very much at a distance as so he's very much disgraced because because of course this affair has come out um which only came out because he was hunting with this Corinna Zuzain Wittgenstein Zuzain she has quite she's got a lot of titles she has a long name yeah she's a Danish businesswoman isn't she and uh he was obviously giving her millions of of euros um and he would like it back 
<laughs> so the, so it's gone to court in the UK. Um, so any privacy is is out. But it's the big question is whether he has immunity or not as a as a former king. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the British um, courts are saying no, you don't. And the British courts are saying you don't. And there were well, there are allegations of intimidation and um, yeah, all sorts of dirty business. And yeah, I mean, yeah, how he has fallen from grace, it, you know, it's it's quite extraordinary. Or got away with everything else in his life is extraordinary. But I suppose, as you said, in 1975, the picture was a very different picture, and it's from one great evil to something that was. Something easier to deal with, let's say. Yeah, but he's living in exile. It can't be. Yes, it's not a a happy end for him either. I think he's in the he's in Abu Dhabi. Yes, it's not so bad there. (laughs) Yeah, because you liked Abu Dhabi. Well, I mean, for a short time, I know what it's like. It's 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 warm. It's pleasant. I think he's okay. (laughs) Yes, I don't think there's too much sympathy. No, no, he's had a good life. Now to something more serious. Jumping back to um, Ukraine. Yes. So again, a lot of news coming out. I mean, the the Russians have pulled out uh, of southern Ukraine uh, around Kherson. Um, the Ukrainians this morning said they had take retaken um, forty settlements, sort of towns and villages. Um, you know, much jubilation. But uh, you know, President Biden only yesterday said. Uh, this is not the end. It's not. It's you know. I, there, he cannot see uh, this war coming to an end um, militarily, but only through talks. So, and of course, what is uncovered is is yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we keep hoping, and I know, of course, there's the additional story when we think about Ukraine, the soldiers through winter in the Donbas region. We have um, the story about tactical socks. Yes, yes. I mean, equipment. Uh, NATO have obviously, we, we kind of read mostly about the, the military equipment that is sent out, but uh, things like how to keep the soldiers warm, because it's it's old-fashioned warfare where they are in trenches and um, they, apparently in the Donbass region, it gets to minus 30, doesn't it? So... Yes, socks, sleeping bags, and and I was so struck by by the information of how they keep warm. I mean, they have old sort of gas heaters. You know, it's one week in, one week out. Um, you're, you're sleeping on pallets and have to take your shoes off so that the mud doesn't uh, go on the pallets. Mm. It's really basic, and it really does make us think that turning our thermostats down is no big deal at all. It's Absolutely, really a luxury to no. Have that we should choice. spare a thought for soldiers there. I have to say. Now, I really like this story. It's about food waste and the school meal offerings. I thought you would. We're both on, on, on waste management, aren't we? Yes. Lisa and I have both admitted we don't throw anything away, much to the <laughs> disgust of our, the rest of our family who open the fridge. But this is an amazing um, enterprise, really, is that uneaten uh, school meals uh, are put into a vending machine. It's one commune in, in Luxembourg called Habscht. And and sold for three euros. So this, that that's the way to go, isn't it's it? It's such a, a good idea. It's to reduce food waste. Absolutely, because all of these canteens have to oversupply because Absolutely. they don't know what choices will be made, etc. I'm thinking perhaps it could even be done with hospital food. I don't know what hospital food is like in Luxembourg, but I'm sure it's good. <laughs> well, I found out from this article that school food is organic and all freshly cooked. And I was like, wow, oh, this is not like a British school food. <laughs> <laughs> no, but th- that means that w- what a lovely opportunity for people who don't have the time to prepare fresh meals for themselves, who are perhaps sick and, and could do with a fresh meal 
prepared. How wonderful. I mean, this is something that could go across all communes. It's such yeah. a great idea and it's affordable as well as the price of a coffee in some places. Absolutely. No, I thought that. I'm sure it will take off. I really, really like that story. And thank you for bringing it to our attention. And then we have another royal story. Oh, which other royal this story is did the I one write down which for you? It's, it's not about the ex-king of Spain. It's not Harry and Meghan or Harry's autobiography. It's the Norwegian princess. Yes, Martha Louise. Um, <laughs> I sound like such a royalist <laughs> me and my royal stories. But um, again, uh, she she's very into alternative medicine and uh, she has married a self-proclaimed shaman who um, says that cancer is a choice and um, has a, sells a kind of medallion for around, I think, $230 uh, that will protect you from COVID. So it's very <laughs> alternative and the straight-laced Norwegians not having any of it. And uh, she has had to... Um, abdicate. abdicate. Really. Well, yes. Is it? She's doing chosen any to... Duties. Yes, yes. Which is fair enough, but I, I can see that uh, this would not go down very well with um, people. Yeah, because he's made comments about cancer as well, hasn't he, I believe? Yes, I mean, he very much says it, it, it's it's a choice that you can fight it off. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, very, it's, it, it's very on the margins, isn't yeah. it? It's not, not just a sort oh. of... Uh, <laughs> We're sitting here in a room yeah, full yeah, exactly, of experts. Full of medics, I'm kind of nervous to, to talk <laughs> well, about it's, it. It's what he's put out there as uh, his beliefs and, and this... Um, yeah, he's I very mean, popular in Hollywood. I mean, he advises people like Gwyneth Paltrow and oh. um, Antonio Banderas it all and makes people sense like then. that. <laughs> yes, I think he's quite handsome too. <laughs> but we have another science story, which is about lighting up the dance floor. Yes. Do you know about this? No. About this? <laughs> right. Well, it's it's um it's all about the bass. So uh it's but it's it's not just the when the bass is turned up that we, we actually want to move more and dance more as researchers have found out. It's subliminal. So um even when people couldn't hear it they they moved more. I can't remember exactly what the percentage was, but they found that uh people 12%. 12%. Danced 12%, uh, 12% more, even when they don't hear a, a bass sound in the music, which I thought was really interesting. It is interesting. It isn't, it, it's all in the mind. Yes. When it comes to that. Not when it comes to cancer, perhaps, but when it comes to dancing and subliminal information there. Well, well, like subliminal messaging. Yes. That was banned, wasn't it, in supermarkets? Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the, the, there is there's obviously much more to it than we realise. Oh, I think the marketing experts are really on. They they know what they're doing there. Okay. <laughs> As un, unsuspecting consumers. Yeah. Well, Sasha, as always, thank you so much. And of course, we should end by saying that we will be present at the International Bazaar this weekend. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's the highlight of the Luxembourg calendar, isn't it, for the expat community? I think also for everybody really yeah it's a fun um, fun thing to do, do you have a, a, a do a i have stand a slot that you like no that you particularly stand. like Our, well last year i did buy a lovely jumper for my daughters who didn't want it so i ended up with it from the spanish stand i also bought a reindeer rug <laughs> <laughs> very useful <laughs> from the scandinavian stand which looked lovely but unfortunately it does drop hair Right. <laughs> and um, yeah, so those two, those two, the Scandinavian stand, uh, and I, I didn't buy tulips actually because I had a supply of tulips, so I didn't need to buy tulips from the Dutch stand. But no, I like experimenting with the different food supplies. 
Yes, I think everyone does, yeah. don't they? <laughs> yes. We, we had someone in from the Romanian stand in yesterday who promised that the alcohol sold at the Romanian stand was the strongest. Oh. I thought I came with a recommendation. <laughs> Palenka, it's called. Okay. I think oh, I probably mispronounced it terribly. It sounds, uh, it sounds lethal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so come with that car and we will be there with our own little stand there, uh, RTL Today, RTL Today Radio. Sasha, thank you so much. See you next week. The Lisa Burke Show. Well, now, following on from Sasha, we are going to turn to Dr. Elizabeth Letelier, who co-heads the Molecular Disease Mechanisms Group, MDM, at the Department of Life Sciences and Medicine. And her current research focuses on understanding the mechanisms underlying tumour initiation and progression in colorectal cancer with a special focus on gut microbiome. So, Elizabeth, it's wonderful to have you here. And you're here for a very special reason, in fact. Yeah, so good morning, Lisa, and thanks very much for the invitation. And indeed, so why I'm here today is to talk a bit about the Inside Colon event that we have um, been organizing at the Belle Etoile. So it started yesterday, kicked off yesterday, and it will last until tomorrow. And what we uh, do is to actually we have a giant colon there where you can go inside and you see exactly what happens in our colon. So it's really from the development, from the function of the colon until also we are also going to speak about cancer and uh, also what we have to do to prevent cancer. And that's why coming back to what you said, um, I we also want to highlight to the younger population how important diet is and dietary uh, balanced diet is actually. Well, I- I want to also just explain for anybody who may not know what a colon is, um, there are other words for it, our gut, our intestines, um, basically where we digest what we eat. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, It's a very important actually part of our organism and we need it and that's uh, where the food actually goes and that's also where all the bacteria lives and bacteria are usually very good for us because they they, uh, take these ingredients that we we take as a diet and then they reduce them to some building blocks and these are the building blocks that are good for our cells. So they are super important for us. And we will come to that but I mean for me personally uh, colorectal cancer is a something that uh, we don't speak a lot about so much in the in the media how common is this cancer well Correct. The cancer is the third most frequent cancer worldwide and the second one in terms of uh, mortality. So it's very important to talk about it. And what is a bit also why it's also so important to talk about it is because now we have seen since 10 years now that the incidence in the younger people is dramatically increasing, meaning under 50. And so that also means that we have to start also thinking about prevention and detection in earlier populations. And why do you think that is coming back to the gut microbiome i would say and also what we you know the the diet um, and what um, what we what we the diet is a western diet have quite an influence here as well and we that changed quite a lot over the 10 last years yes yes well we will we will come to that but again i mean actually personally speaking the reason um it resonates so much with me is that i have a friend my age who um has stage four colorectal cancer and it is it is it's terrible to witness that actually um so let's talk about prevention then what can we do i suppose it comes back to food 
Yeah, so I mean, for 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 of course, when we talk about long time prevention, then we talk about food. And so, I mean, I would say it's a balanced diet, not because you are going to eat one burger in a week that this is uh, like now leading to to some cancer, not at all. But you need just to have a balanced diet. And what is really important are, of course, vegetables because they have a lot of different fibers, and fibers are important for our bacteria, for example. And so what we uh, look, aim or should aim at is that we should get this bacteria in a healthy, balanced state. And this is how they feed. So they like to have fibers. And so if you provide them to this to them, then they will be in a better mood, so to say. And so but when we are talking about prevention in, in the population 50 onwards, then we speak more about the different tests that they can do. Right. So this is very important in 50, 50, 55 onwards, you Uh, you should do some tests, which are called fit tests, and thereby you can then also detect quite early. And, and do doctors recommend that or should you be going yourself to the doctor and asking for this test? So it's, it's a bit like uh, for breast cancer. From 55 onwards, you are uh, actually invited by the Ministry of Health to participate in this prevention campaign and you uh, get a fit test at home. A fit test is based on the detection of human blood into in feces samples. But is 55 them. too late? Because you said the age is coming down. We have to start somewhere, but I would say that over the next years, we will see whether we should not decrease it and, and already start at 50, yes. And then I want to talk about um, young people and trying to get younger people, well, all of us really, but because the age is coming down and this is um, a lifetime's work, really, taking care of our bodies. Um, when it comes to gut microbiome, which I think is a science that's burgeoning and a really, really interesting science to come, how can we enlighten people to eat a better diet i guess by by because you know now we are not only talking about cancer we know that for example bacteria are also important in other kind of diseases so i think it's more uh, to also explain and uh, already the kids what bacteria do and that they are very important for us and that uh, keeping them in a healthy state is important and so it's again it's about a balanced diet it's not about about some things that are bad or good, but it's really about um, trying variety. to have a variety of different ingredients. Yeah. And then moving on to the actual research that you do in Luxembourg, tell us about this translational research towards new therapeutic strategies. Yeah, so we have um, started to build up uh, more than 10 years ago with different collaborators. So the LIH, uh, LIH together, so Luxembourg Institute for Health, the LNS, Laboratoire National de Santé, and different hospitals within the country and collection, which includes different uh, colorectal cancer patients. And so we started this in 2010. We have now more than 180 patients that are involved and that we follow over time. So every year we these patients are coming back and we again get some patients, uh, some patient samples. So these are super important for us because they allow us to really do longitudinal Accords and really analyze them over time. But in addition to that, we can get um, the fresh tissue samples from this patient. So when the diagnosis is, is confirmed, we get the, pe the piece of the tumor in the lab, we can grow it and you can recapitulate actually the tumor uh, that the patient had. And that's important because that's how you can do drug testing and in a personalized way. So you really have the patient's tumor in the dish. 
which we will move on to. The personalization of medicine is, of course, something that's going to become, hopefully in our lifetimes, much more beneficial to whatever we will end up having uh, in our older years. And hopefully we've got a few to come before that. Um, how many different types of colorectal cancer are there? So there are, um, we always um, have to look at the different so familial cases, hereditary cases and the sporadic ones. And so we, we mostly talk about these two types, so the, the, the ones that are more in family. It's around 20% and there are 80% up sporadic, so that are due to mutations over time. and even. So really only 20% is genetic in some way and the rest is really up to our environment or our lifestyles, which means we can... Oh. Yes, yes. No, well, yes, I mean, it's an accumulation of mutations. I'm not saying that this is always due to exposure or to the exposome, but um, it, basically it's due to an unknown reason where some cells accumulate mutations over time. And if somebody has something like Crohn's disease or um, some form of eating allergy, does that affect it in any way? So chronic inflammation per se is a risk factor for colorectal cancer and Crohn's disease is a chronic inflammation of the gut, of the colon. Yeah, well, I, all I can say is thank you so much for shining a light on this because as you mentioned right at the top, it's a well, the third most common cancer. It's coming down in age to affect so many more people and every year I think about 350 people in Luxembourg yes, are affected exactly. by this yeah. uh, with the second highest mortality rate, you said. Yes, exactly. So we really need to make sure we're checking that. Um, for younger people who haven't gone past the age of 55, what symptoms should people look out for? Well, this is quite difficult because colorectal cancer at the beginning is very asymptomatic. But I would say that, um, you know, everything which is related to the gut and digestion is something that are early symptoms and that um, people should take um, care about. But I also would like to say that, again, um, I think the prevention is more about uh, really um, The, the, what we have talked about before, diet. And that's also why during this event, we also launched an art competition with different uh, high schools here in Luxembourg. And so I went to different high schools and explained already the kids at the age of 14, 15, what the gut bacteria are doing and what is important and how diet is, is actually a very important component of our um, life. And I think this kind of advertisement helps quite a lot, you know, to already educate the younger population. I think it's incredibly important, even if uh, younger people are not aware right now that one day in the future they might die because <laughs> it comes closer to us the older we get and we, we think more and more about it as we as we see our friends and family go, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, um, and the feedback from the schools were, was quite positive. You can also visit, visit the Belle Etoile. So on the first floor, you will see all the art pieces that are coming together, more than 100 art pieces from the different schools where they actually sort and reflect it on uh, you know, our gut and our lifestyle. And I think this is quite important, this kind Kind of reflection for the younger population. It really is. It sows the seed of thought for the future and how we live our lives. I thank you so much, Elizabeth, and good luck uh, with the with the next couple of days in Belle Etoile also. And of course, we're inviting you all to go and visit and to learn more, particularly young people to go and learn more. I mean, of course, you should come to the, the Bazaar International and also visit Belle Etoile for this exactly. wonderful, <laughs> wonderful uh, display and learn more about colorectal cancer. Thank you, Elizabeth. And I know you're going to stay with us because I know, actually, you know the two gentlemen here. Uh, so to give a little introduction, I have Professor Neurologist Raiko Kruger, who is also a doctor 
and a researcher, both roles. Professor for Neuroscience at the University of Luxembourg, Director of Transversal Translational Medicine at the Luxembourg Institute of Health. And since June 2019, works between the Luxembourg Institute of Health and the Luxembourg Centre for Systems Biomedicine to contribute to personalised medicine, which we've been speaking about. And you work with Dr. Ibrahim Boussad, who is a research scientist at the Luxembourg Centre for Systems Biomedicine at the University of Luxembourg. So lovely to have you both here. Now, we're going to talk, uh, first of all, about Parkinson's disease, which is under the umbrella of neurodegenerative diseases. So, uh, Raika, I'm going to turn to you, first of all, to to tell us a little bit more about uh, Parkinson's disease, because most people will have heard about it. They might know some of the symptoms, but, um, but it's much broader than that. Yes. So, first of all, thank you, Lisa, for inviting us and giving us the opportunity to present. Yes, indeed, Parkinson's, I think it's a very well-known disease. It's the fastest growing new degenerative disorder worldwide at the moment. So there's a need to do prevention and to have better treatments. And this is also named and described by James Parkinson in 1817 as a shaking palsy. And I think this describes already a little bit how the symptoms look like. It's a motor disease, so people can see it. You have a trembling, a shivering of your hand. You have a slowing of movements. And that's something that's quite characteristic. What we learned in the meantime is that it starts much earlier and it starts even with symptoms that you would not connect to this motor disease. And this brings me back to what we heard before, because the intestines are early affected. You have constipation as a very early symptom. Oh, so the intestines, are, oh, we come back to the colon again. And, and, <laughs> and, and we know that because we have already some areas of research that we share, because it's really known that the pathology attaches or uh, uh, attends the whole body and it can be from the micro biome also potentially inf- influenced. The overall characteristic of Parkinson's is that there's a premature aging of neurons in the brain that control movements. But the same neurons in the whole body can also show similar alterations, protein aggregation. So a kind of lack of clearance of pathological proteins from the cell. And you two have been working together. And just to give us context to some of the research that you do, because I know you, you wear many hats, <laughs> Raiko. I don't know what time time scale or your schedule looks like, but it's very packed, I'm sure. But I want to dig in a little more. I mean, you won a very large FNR award recently, and congratulations on that. But tell us about that work specifically, because within the the bracket of Parkinson's disease, again, part of it is genetic. But you can explain more fully, perhaps, the the different pockets of Parkinson's disease yes uh, so uh, yeah as Raiko said it's very broad disease and um, similar to what uh, the situation in colon cancer is we have um, um, inherited Parkinson's disease but we have also idiopathic Parkinson's disease where we don't really know the cause of the disease and um, the numbers are quite similar so we're talking about uh, roughly 20 percent with genetic cause and uh, 80 percent idiopathic PD although we are not sure how many of these idiopathic cases actually do have a genetic uh, cause that we still not know Mm -hmm. about. And yeah, so these are the two groups, the inherited and genetic PD and the idiopathic PD. And yeah, in our research, we we work on both, but uh, one of the strategies we follow is that we take this um, familial cases where the where the patient has a inherited a mutation that causes the disease. And we've seen 
there are there are a number of genes that can cause the disease when mutated, and we've seen that each of these mutations is a little bit representative for a more representative uh, for a subgroup of patients because what we've learned and we in our lab now we are not talking about Parkinson's disease as one disease but more as a group of disorders they all share the same clinical uh, outcome but uh, molecularly they they look a little bit different mm-hmm. and, and i think actually your research has relied upon that well, to use your word, Elizabeth, the longitudinal studies and the fact that you have particularly, uh, you are working with one family in particular, I think, in Luxembourg, where you have the history of the disease running through their family. That's an essential point, And I want to underscore the importance of participants committing to research. Everybody can help, even people not having the disease and having samples from people with the disease and people without the disease. We can do our research using cell models to study the disease in a dish. And we are not as privileged as for um, colon diseases where you can take the tissue and study. Of course, I can promise you we don't take uh, <laughs> brain biopsies, but we can use a skin biopsy. So a little piece of the skin can help us to model the cells that are affected by Parkinson's disease in the brain. This is what Ibo does every day, and that helps us in a way to study under the microscope the feature of shaking palsy. Of course, the cell doesn't shake, mm-hmm. but you see signatures of the disease. And as Ibo said, there are different signatures for different subtypes. And uh, the one characteristic signature that he looked at for that specific family was really based on longitudinal follow-up, getting back to the people, asking back again, helping us to navigate and finding that signature after many, many years. So we were in contact since the uh, year 2000 with this family and that led to a publication now that helped us in a way to understand better that part of the disease. And I I have a note here as well, which is that... um, at one stage, uh, French vineyard workers developed Parkinson's as a result of pesticide exposure. That's an important point, And we were all discussing about environmental factors. Ibo mentioned we have very clear genetic causes where one gene mutation is sufficient to cause a disease. But we know that also environmental factors play a big role. And there are a lot of studies out there, very impressive one from the US in the wine yards of California, where you really can see a correlation between the amount of pesticides that has been brought out in a region and the number of cases with Parkinson's. And that led the French government to recognize Parkinson's in the uh, people in the viticulture that work in the vineyards uh, as a professional disease. And uh, because that's more frequent and that's recognized to have a professional link. Mm-hmm. So these studies and just then a call out, really, you would like people to come forward and donate samples, I suppose. Yes, definitely. To to uh, participate in the cohorts we are building up and um, especially healthy donors are, I think, always a little bit uh, more difficult to get. So, well, they probably think they don't need to donate yeah, any samples. They, 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 they might not have the connection. So uh, I think we have a little bit of bias in the whole donors that they are family members of the patients. It would be nice also to have people who are... So that's a call out for all of us to, to nip along. Where, where should we go to donate uh, skin samples? Is there anywhere in particular we should uh, knock on the door of? <laughs> there's a National Centre for Research in Parkinson's Disease and uh, there's a so-called Parkinson's Research Clinic that is uh, at the moment at the Val Fleury and here we are inviting participants that can contribute to all kinds of neurodegenerative research 
And uh, that's open to everybody, people with a disease, but also people without the disease. And what gets more and more important, and just to mention, is with the research that we are going on, we understand better the causes and we even try to develop strategies to tackle the causes. But if we are able to intervene with the cause of the disease, the progression that we cannot treat at the moment, we should consider whom should we treat earlier that he doesn't get the disease. So we are currently looking into at-risk individuals. This is some big project in Luxembourg and we have a, a survey open for everybody in Luxembourg, the Healthy Brain Study. Which we... We will put on the website, of course, and, and I'm encouraging everybody to fill this out and to look into the survey as well, because, I mean, really what overlaps between the two conversations we're having today is that we should try to prevent this as much as possible. Yeah. And we are not yet there. I think cancer has taught us, taught us how important it is to look into specific causes. And there are many, I would say, not personalized, but precision medicine approaches, uh, approaches where you really can tackle one subtype of cancer. We do not have it yet for neurodegeneration, but I think we are getting there and we should get prepared for the next step that comes. Yeah, and actually on, on that point, we're not just talking about Parkinson's, but it's the whole umbrella group of neurodegenerative diseases. And I suppose there's many links between the two. Yes, of course. So um, you know that Parkinson's disease is a motor disease, but honestly and unfortunately, a big part of Parkinson's patients develop cognitive problems, develop dementia over time. And dementia is even a much higher burden in the country than Parkinson's disease because Alzheimer's is something is very well known that adds to that kind of complex disorder where we, in a way, have trouble with the memory, cannot uh, really cope with the exigencies of everyday living. And that's some really social impact that we need to tackle. And here... Our research helps because we learned that ways to prevent dementia can also help to prevent Parkinson's, like physical activity. That's another reason to do sports and to be active, <laughs> well, because that's clearly shown scientifically. So I need to ask you then, how do we stop that? I mean, of course, when you're talking about all of the those dementia ailments and Alzheimer's, it's not just a burden on the patient, it's a huge burden on the caregivers. It's, it's a real weight on the whole family or the group around that poor individual. So how can we prevent if we can help ourselves as we get older, what can we do to help ourselves prevent this neurodegeneration? So as we are <clears throat> all researchers, of course, we like to adhere to something that has been shown from uh, big studies, big trials. And it's very nice to see that indeed we can act on the risk. So there are more than 13 modifiable risk factors. And if you act on them, you can prevent 40% of dementia worldwide. Wow. And these are factors that you can influence early in life, like education. So a better education helps to prevent dementia later on in life. But you can act on things immediately. Why, why is that? I think it is about uh, training the brain like a muscle. So if you imagine, if you have a big good training of your brain, it is more active, it has more also reserve capacities for the future, that if an aging process starts, that you can still have resources to cope, to balance, to equilibrate. And does it mean education early in life or ongoing lifelong learning? Lifelong learning, that's the topic, right? So of course it starts early, but uh, and as we are all do in our everyday work, we teach and, and we educate and that's important also to receive that because that keeps our brain active but there are other factors that you can start immediately like doing more sports as I mentioned adapting your diet um, how, how so much sport I need specifics <laughs> here <laughs> 
Here it has been the more the better. And, uh, oh gosh. <laughs> so anything more helps uh, that has been shown. But uh, it's not only the sports, it's also healthy uh, nutrition. So Mediterranean diet is a kind of buzzword, but it's, it's true. And, and you can even bring it down to some factors like uh, olive oil, which has a lot of uh, unsaturated fatty acids. That plays a role. But other factors you would not expect, maybe like social integration, being active, going out, going dancing. We talked about music before. We did. So that's something that can help and uh, can also prevent it. Even uh, hearing loss is a problem and should be treated because apparently that also prevents you from reaching out, from connecting and from keeping your brain active. And all these are factors that we are tackling in a national dementia prevention program that is offered to everybody in Luxembourg, the program Demence Prevention. And that's something where you can, if you have the impression there is something changing, where you can get tested and can get uh, feedback on what could be changed. This is absolutely fascinating. And I must be at a time in my life where I'm feeling a little bit fragile because I'm kind of trying to absorb all of the help I can get. <laughs> Actually, I think it was brought on. I mentioned it this morning on the show. Um, I did an epigenetic uh, age test and my uh, apparently my biological age is higher by a decade than my actual age, which was quite depressing. So <laughs> I really need to put in, in place some, <clears throat> some major changes. But of course, all of this... <clears throat> It's it's uh, it's really incredible work and the research that you're doing. It, it's so wonderful. And I'd like to, you to talk a little bit more about the personalization of medicine that's coming up in the future. Yes. Um, so uh, the uh, the reason behind this or the rationale behind this is that for many diseases, um, this old way of having uh, one disease, one treatment doesn't work anymore. And um, so in cancer, it has come up much earlier than now in your generation when we are about to start or we've just started. So it turns out that um, um, so often standard treatment does not work for a big group of the patients or even um, uh, or another uh, thing is that uh, a treatment does make, doesn't make it to the market because it was tested on the wrong population maybe on the whole population of this disease and then and then you lose the information that it actually would help uh, a, a subgroup of these patients so uh, the idea of personalized or precision medicine is that you go and you um, stratify your patient groups in subgroups with similarities with the signatures like mentioned and um, um, then test on these groups or even on a single patient if it's possible and 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 uh, study this in depth and find the cause for the disease or a specific signature that you can target and then um, in the field where it's more uh, um, advanced in cancer for example um, there are there are centers which take the cancer and uh, from the patient and then they test on this tissue sample all the different drugs that are available to see if there is resistance and which drug is still working and then they can get back with this information Uh, to the doctors, to the uh, patient and treat the patient accordingly. For us, it's a little bit more difficult with the brain, as Reich explained. <laughs> uh, so we have to do, uh, we have a bigger effort. We have to take a skin sample, convert these cells into stem cells, grow neurons, study then the, the patient cells. It takes a little bit more time, but uh, we are getting there. And um, like in our study uh, that was awarded, we, we, we show a way 
Well, it was a proof of concept, it, in it fact. Was a proof and, of concept and, and, the, and the case where we really could, thanks to the donation of the, of the patient, study the disease, identify the cause, like really the mechanism. And then if you have a mechanism, you have already a target for a treatment medication. and then search for it. Yes, which is really the entire pipeline. So you've gone from, as we say uh, in medicine, from bed to bench to bed. So you've got uh, the so cells. We went all, almost back to bed. You're getting there. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So we started with the fundamental, or let's say we, even earlier, we started with the clinic from bed, Raikou's patient, um, it figured out it's a familial case and then it got to the lab and then we found out what does the mutation do, why does it cause the disease, what's the mechanism and then in the lab we started then screening for drugs that might help and we found then a combination of compounds that helps in cell culture and now we're on the way back to the bedside. Yeah, yeah. And of course, all of this has been helped because Luxembourg decided to have a centre of excellence for Parkinson's. How important has that been in the research that you have been able to produce? I think it's critical and highly important. So I think what we recognize and even more in Luxembourg that we have to join forces. So we have so many excellent research centers and hospitals. And if we collaborate, we can establish exactly that bed to bench to bed cycle that is needed for our patients. And with the National Center for Excellence that was founded eight years ago, we had a kind of role model. We could reach out. We could invite partners from the Luxembourg Institute of Health, from the University of Luxembourg, from the Laboratoire National de Santé, from the Centre Hospitalier. We work together and we built up a cohort of patients, of participants with the disease, without. That was a starting point for all the downstream work that you can see now and that in the meantime also received a lot of international recognition. So we have partners from Oxford, from Tübingen and Germany that we collaborate and I think that shows what is essential in research, connecting the dots and connecting knowledge and connecting expertise. And of course, through this conversation, I think there's great overlap with your work. I mean, not necessarily in, in the precise nature of it, but certainly in the thoughts and the processes, I think, Elizabeth. Yeah, absolutely. I think where I totally agree with Raiko is that what we need is really building up this, this knowledge, expertise, the longitudinal cords really are, are key here. And bringing now clinicians together with researchers is absolutely a goal in Luxembourg and will also then foster all of this environment that will then lead to a lot of new knowledge. Well, you, you've said something which I think Raiko is very proud of, the fact that he is a doctor and a researcher. How important is that in the type of work that you are doing? I think it's really important and I'm happy also to collaborate with many researchers in order to be able to connect because still I'm a little bit a kind of uh, hummingbird colibri here in Luxembourg, but I think it should get more and more normal because I know many colleagues who are motivated to connect research in their clinical work because then you can take up from the newest knowledge, from the newest evidence and bring it back to your patients. That's of mutual interest and benefit and that's I think also something that will attract also or foster 
just a research because we need that exchange. So I think it's so important to have a good clinical characterization. It's named deep phenotyping, but it's in a way with a magnification glass going into and seeing subtle symptoms, early signs. As I mentioned, nobody knew that a sleep disorder is the highest risk factor for getting Parkinson's. So people with a REM sleep behavior disorder have an 80% probability to turn into Parkinson's within the next 10 years. That came out through deep phenotyping. And now we can use that knowledge to see how can we prevent because there is a track. There has to, uh, we can act 10 years. We can offer sports. Uh, I mentioned that. We can can you just say that again? Because I think that's extremely important that you just dro drop that into the conversation but I know a number of people who can't sleep very well Can I know. You there are many reasons why you uh, cannot sleep well yes so but you, you said something very specific so just underline and repeat what you've just said so that I can get it into my brain <laughs> <laughs> to make it very simple, people, yes, that tend to, people that tend to shout at night or that act out their dreams. So if you're dreaming to have a uh, to be in the boxing ring and ah. to, to fight, that's something that could be a REM sleep behavior disorder because in the REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, you're typically fully relaxed, the back, best relaxed muscle tonus that you can have. But in this context, the uh, affected people start moving. That should not be. And they start shouting. And that's typically something they themselves may not realize, but the bad partner, of course, yeah, unfortunately. The other person. And the other person. But that can be an early sign. And uh, here, um, of course, doctors in Luxembourg, sleep doctors can help to diagnose and to see. But that is something that you first can treat. And that's also good for the bad partner, that it yeah. gets more quiet at home. <laughs> but, and, and that's a good thing, you can support research. Because these are the people that are also helping us to better understand the time before partner. Parkinson's disease. How course. was that found, discovered? How, how did you link that sleep pattern to an early sign of Parkinson's? That's again, that's a connection between clinical experience, observations and research because it was observed in clinics that diagnose this disorder that more and more of these people turn into Parkinson's later on. We had a similar thing for genetic cause of Parkinson's disease, so-called GBA. That is a disease if you have two mutations, you get a childhood disorder. But one of the parents each has the same mutation, doesn't get the childhood disorder, but they got Parkinson's later in life. And it was the pediatricians who realized that among the parents there were more people getting Parkinson's and now it's the most common genetic cause for Parkinson's, the GBA mutation, just to give another example. Well, I would like to leave us on a positive note. <laughs> so as we all move, I was going to use the word hurtle, but let's call it a gentle flow towards old age. I mean, all of this comes under the, the again, a new science, along with, I think, the, the gut science, which is really a buzzword out there at the moment. The other new science that I see a lot on my, I was going to use the word Twitter feed there, at the moment, um, is old age. And I think there's new research groups being built up to think about how how old age is perceived and some groups, I can think of a Harvard group, who call old age a disease, for instance, Dr. Sinclair in old age. Um, so um, all of this, you're, you're, you're shaking your head here. So <laughs> It's all about healthy aging yeah. and I think healthy that's the point. And that's our ambition, of course, to get old, but not feeling it and being able to do all our activities. Well, I think actually that's, that's probably what he would agree with healthy aging in the sense that old age is a combination of things that are going wrong in parallel. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, obviously neurodegenerative, that's actually, I was going to say it's one of the worst ones, but of course, you know, it's it's hard on the person and it's 
any disease as we get older is awful. But um, when you lose your mind, I think that's something that a lot of people really fear. Mm-hmm. And just then finally, final thoughts really about how you can bring all of this incredibly high level science down to a basic level for all of us mere mortals here. Give us some some influencing thoughts for the weekend to come, what we should be doing to kind of like (laughs) try to ensure that we can prevent and educate uh, our young ones around us or our older parents, for instance, as well, or anybody around us. How can we help and what can we do for people within our circle, including our Ourselves. So I would say for the younger population, come to Belle Etoile. We will show you how to, um, how we also have a comic actually to, to really also make it more understandable what we, what nutrition and healthy nutrition really is, because this is also, you know, like a buzzword, but what does it mean? So this is something that we can educate and we should do it early during school time already. I think that's really something important. And for the older population, I would say for correct the cancer, it's, it's fairly easy. These tests are there. You just need to do it. And that's the problem with the population uh, or with the um, some people, of course, they tend to not want to take a stool sample and put it there and send it back. So I think it's an easy step and it's really something that can save your life. Thank you. And uh, final words to you two, really. Tell us a little bit about what we can be doing, those 13 steps. I've got a few of them noted. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would invite everybody and we invite everybody in Luxembourg between age 50 and 80 to join our Healthy Brain Aging Survey. So that's a survey everybody can access, heba.lu. And here you get questions that you can fill out. You can actively contribute to increase our knowledge. How can we better age in a healthy condition and it helps research worldwide because we are connected here with a Michael J. Fox funded project with people in Austria, people in Germany, people in Spain. So that's an international project. And in his case, actually, now that you've mentioned Michael J. Fox, what was his particular type of Parkinson's? It's a good point. So I think, and that's still a debate because the experts always uh, discuss what it could be, but we know that if it's early in life, there's more a genetic component. So the earlier in life, the more there is a family background, typically. And the good thing is, the earlier you get Parkinson's in your life, the less complications you meet. So for instance, I mentioned before, there are people that develop unfortunate dementia with Parkinson's disease, but people that get it early in life, they don't. They are protected. That's a good news. I can tell my patients if I do an early diagnosis and have some patients that are diagnosed at age 28 with Parkinson's. So that's good news in that context. And actually, one thing we haven't spoken about um, is the fact that there's actually at the moment no real cures for Parkinson's. I know you're working towards that, but uh, there are no cures. No, there are no cures. There are treatments, mostly symptomatic, which can incredibly improve the quality of life, which is for the patients, as Raiko always reports, one of the most important uh, uh, factor in their lives. It's not actually stop the disease, but please help me uh, get up in the morning on my own and and, and be able to drink a coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no cure and there is also no stopping or slowing down of the progression. Which is, But we have research going on. And just to mention, now in Luxembourg, we can offer first innovative treatments through trials. So that's a placebo and a compound. But here we have compounds that now act, for instance, on the protein that sticks together in the nerve cells that we now target with a new treatment. That's a study that just launched here in Luxembourg and hopefully at some 
uh, at some point we can get back. Yeah. This is a trial that was developed from the lab by the company Roche, and now it comes back to the clinical trial. And clinical trials is something that is very important for our research to yeah. prove that actually what we bring back helps. And of course, anybody suffering from it wants the clinical trials to go ahead a little bit faster. This is always the case. Well, thank you all so much for your wonderful work, your continued work. And again, a call out for everybody to visit Belle Etoile this weekend for your fantastic uh, organisation of colorectal information there and the International Bazaar, where we will be present as RTL Today and RTL Today Radio. And of course, if you're aged between 50 and 80, to fill out this study on hiba.lu. Please, yes. Thank you all so much for being here today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank and you for your invitation. A great pleasure. And to all of the listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. As always, you can write in with your ideas, thoughts, any stories you'd like us to cover. It's a great pleasure to hear from you. And uh, always, I do like the little comments that you add now and again. It always makes my day. Thank you so much. The Lisa Burke Show.